throughout Esther, what we're going to see is we're going to have, we're going to pretty much see how God's kingdom is interacting invisibly behind a secular kingdom of this world. That's why I called the series The Tale of Two Kingdoms. We're going to see this. We're going to see how it plays out. And we're going to see how God is working behind the scenes throughout this time. Throughout the entire story, God is just constantly working divinely, sovereignly. And we will see the perfect wisdom of our God play out throughout this series. But to introduce Esther, I want to give you guys some background first. I want to show you guys the context. So tonight, we're not going to get super deep into Esther. I'm going to do a lot of background information just so that we understand the setting as we're reading through Esther. The first thing we're going to look at is we're going to look at where exactly is Esther in, in reference to Israel. Israel at this time is in exile. Now, what exactly happened? What exactly is happening with Israel here? Well, let me start from the beginning. Well, not all the way in the beginning like Genesis, but let me, start, let me start where I think we should start. So, under King David, under King David, Israel was united as a nation. All 12 tribes are gathered together under one monarch, King David, and they're united. But after King David, slowly his descendants, like from Solomon to the sons of Solomon to, and, and on and on, slowly those kings led Israel down a path of evil and wickedness, down a path of unfaithfulness. And slowly they, they, they're, they're descending down to become apostates. To become people who, who don't obey God. As a result of all that, the nation actually ended up splitting in two. Right? This one united nation ended up splitting in two. We have this northern nation, and then we have this southern nation. The northern nation is Israel. And that Israel is, normal, is known to be more evil than the southern nation, Judah. However, Judah is to end up falling away from God as well. But Judah, Judah is more well known as a longer, they had a longer faithfulness because Judah is where Jerusalem was at. And Jerusalem was the capital. Jerusalem was where the throne, where the seat of David was at. And so the true sons of David was actually sitting on the throne in Judah. And they, they, they were trying to keep their faithfulness to God alive. But after many years, after many generations, they too fell away. And in 722 BC, we see Israel, the northern nation, fall away because of their sin. They fell away and they fell to the Assyrian Empire. And we see that in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 7. In 2 Kings chapter 17, it's, it's a very simple statement here in verse 7. Um, here it says, The fall of Israel occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. They, they, God placed judgment upon Israel, and they brought God brought judgment through the form of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrian Empire took over Israel. Now the Assyrian Empire looked over to Judah as well, but God preserved Judah, and so Judah survived as a nation for another about 140 years. And during that timeline, between 722 to 582, when Judah finally fell. Assyria actually lost its power, and the empire of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar rose up and took over. 
And so here at that time, at, at five at five eighty two BC, the southern kingdom of Judah fell to the Babylon Empire. And we see that story, we see that account in Second Kings chapter twenty five. So again, all this stuff is biblical here, but all this stuff also happened in real life history. If you look through your history books. In 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 21, pretty much the last sentence there is simply just says, Judah was taken into exile out of its land. So by 582, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, were in exile. They were dispersed. They were out of their homeland, taken away into the kingdom of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar ruled over them. And during that time, during that time, the Jewish people seek to try to survive in this foreign country, seek to try to survive in this foreign land where they're seen as slaves, not as citizens. Imagine the turmoil they must have gone through. Imagine the families raising up their children in this foreign land. Imagine their angst. Of wanting to go back home. Imagine what it must feel like to be displaced from their land of comfort, to be ruled under by a foreign king. During that time of the exile, there was still there were still prophets. God still was raising up prophets to to give them hope, to to, to teach at them, to preach God's word to them. And Jeremiah was a prophet during that time. In Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah 29, the entire chapter is a letter from Jeremiah to the exiles. In Jeremiah 29, this is what God says to the Jewish people through Jeremiah. In verse 8, it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in this name. I did not send them, declare the Lord. Verse 10. But thus says the Lord, when the 70 years are completed, so 70 years in Babylon, in exile, when these 70 years are completed, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And before all this, God tells Israel to build houses in Babylon, to raise up their family, to, to survive, and to make Babylon pretty much their home during the 70 years. But then... Whenever we read through the Old Testament, guys, whenever we read through stories like Esther, stories like Second Kings, we have to constantly be asking ourselves, what is going to happen to God's promise? What is going to happen to God's promise to His people? Because our, the world's hope for salvation lies within that promise. And if God's people are dispersed away from the land, how is God's promise going to hold up? And that's why Jeremiah 29 is so important. Because during this time of exile, when these Jewish people are out of their homelands, they needed to hear hope from God. And they needed to hear God say, I have a plan for you. Plan for welfare, not for evil. 
for future and for a hope. They need to be reminded that there's something working, that God is doing something, even though they were gone from their homeland. And Israel, in a way, they, they obeyed during this time. They, they, they actually didn't just survive, they actually thrived in Babylon. They, they, they rose up in ranks, they gained wealth. They, they gained status. This is a time Daniel, the story of Daniel, happened during this time. And if we know about the story of Daniel, Daniel rose up in ranks to become an advisor, an official in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Right? And, and that, that was what, that was a representation of kind of how the Jewish people were, they were in a way thriving in Babylon. But Babylon didn't last because God said he only, he, God said when 70 years completed, so 70 years later, about 70 years later, we see Cyrus the Great in 539 BC. Cyrus the Great led Persia. I forgot the pen. 539 BC, Cyrus the Great led Persia and conquered Babylon. And so the nation of Israel, Jew, the Jewish people, were still dispersed throughout the Empire of Babylon, but now they have a new foreign leader, Cyrus. And they must all be wondering what's going to happen to them. What's going to happen? Are they going to get exiled again? Are they going to get dispersed again, farther away from their homeland? What's going to happen? Is God still there? But in 538, something miraculous happened. And Cyrus decreed that all exiled foreigners, and this is not just Israel now, it's not just the Jewish people, but all foreigners that Babylon has conquered and taken in as slaves, all of them are allowed and free to go back to their homelands, including the Jewish people. You find that in Second Chronicles chapter 36. In Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 22 to 23, we see how Jeremiah's prophecy was fulfilled. This is what it says. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. This is the hope that Jewish people were waiting for. This is what they were holding on to. This is what they wanted ever since they left Judah. And and this is I mean, this is God working. God working constantly throughout all these different all these different people, all these different entities. Whether they are believers, whether they're not, God controls the world. And God works sovereignly. Unfortunately, because many of the Jewish people have made their homes in exile, 
only a small remnant of them returned back to Jerusalem. Only a small remnant returned back. And we have to ask ourselves why. And I and when I think about this more, I think I can understand why. Because many of us here, many of us here are Asian American. And I don't know what generation Asian American you are. I'm a second gen, meaning my parents came from China. Well, my dad came from China. My mom came from Hong Kong. But I know my dad, he went through, he went through the Cultural Revolution. I don't know how many of your parents went through the Cultural Revolution when that happened in China. And during that time, it was hard for him. He was poor. His family was poor. He struggled. He wanted to earn money. He wanted to support his family. He couldn't go to university. And so he worked hard to try to just sustain himself, sustain his family. And when he finally moved to America, he moved because he wanted he wanted opportunity. He wanted opportunity to build a life for his future family. And that was for me. And that was a hard move. Because that means he left a homeland, even though there was a struggle there. Even though the Cultural Revolution happened there. It was still hard to him to move to a foreign land where he didn't know the language as well. Where he didn't have a home. And to build himself up there. To make a stake there. To make a claim there. And I know so many times that growing up, I would just hear how much my parents worked so that me and my sister would be able to have a good education here and be able to be stable here. And if I were to tell them that I would want to move elsewhere to a dirt world country, if I were to say I would move back to China before all this economic boom happened, I don't think they would want that. Even though I was to say I would move back to China if it was still poor. Because they know that that was it was hard to go back. They they wanted to keep what they had. They wanted to keep the comforts and security alive. And so if we put ourselves in the shoes of these families, of these Jewish people, and how they thrived in a way in Babylon, even though they were foreigners, even though they weren't citizens, in a way, we can, we can understand in a way of why they didn't want to go back. It was hard. It was hard to constantly be displaced. And what I really want to show you here is how so many of the stories that we see throughout the Old Testament, yes, it's a different context. Yes, it's in history. Yes, it's a different culture. But many times at the heart level, they're pretty much just like you and me. The struggles that they face, the decisions that they're trying to make, is the very same decisions we're trying to make daily. There's a lot that we can learn from the Old Testament. There's a lot we can learn from the stories claimed here. If we just put ourselves in their shoes and think about what they have gone through. There's so much to gain from Scripture. And so this is where we're at now. And our story of Esther actually lies here during this time. During this time with the remaining exiled Jewish people who didn't go back in Persia. Let me give you guys some more context. Here's a little timeline. Whoop. In 538, 
I'm going to start writing. We have Cambius. Cambius came into rule over Persia. And Cambius is Cyrus' son. So Cyrus is the one who gave the decree to, to release the exiles. Cambius came into rule. And he came into rule and his rule was a little shaky. Um, he ended up killing himself because there was, he, he couldn't, when some imposter tried to take his throne, I think the stress got too much of him, the pressure got too much, and he ended up killing himself. And so by doing so, at 522 BC, a general named Darius ended up taking the throne. And Darius is important, because during the time of Darius, we actually see him being mentioned in the book of Ezra. And Darius actually helped the Jewish people who went back to Jerusalem rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So, during this time, Darius, again, remember, Jewish people are now split up. There are some who actually returned, and they rebuilt a temple, and they're settling in Judah, and there's others who stayed in Persia, and they remained in Persia. Now, in 586, Darius' son came into power. And Darius' son's name is Xerxes. And his name that we know him better as, in Hebrew, let me see if I can get this right. Oh, I already spelled that wrong. All right, let me do this right. Ahas... Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. I was trying to look this up in Hebrew and trying to pronounce it for you guys correctly. Um, but this is the king that we see in Esther. This is this is now we're reaching to Esther's time. And this is the king of Esther that we see in Esther. And he's taking over. And that's happening at 486. And at 483 is when our story begins. At 479, this is when we're introduced to Esther. And Esther's story goes all the way to 4. 73, and then from 5, 458 to 433, this is just to give you guys an understanding of where this falls in biblical timeline. This is the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And this is when the walls were rebuilt in Jerusalem. Okay. So right now we're looking at this time period right here within our story. So that is what that looks like. This is a map of the nation of Persia. And we see here Persia going, f coming from India all the way across um, to Greece and taking over some of Africa as well. They, and when we read through Esther, we're going to see that it says that Ahasuerus reigned from India to Ethiopia. You can see this map if you have a study Bible. I simply just grabbed this from the ESV study Bible. So that takes us into our passage for today. And so you guys have your Bibles. Turn to Esther chapter 1. And we're not going to go too deep, as I said. But Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 9 is what we're going to look at. How many of you guys have seen Crazy Rich Agents already? How many of you guys have not seen Crazy Rich Asians? Oh, okay. There's a bunch of you who haven't seen it. All right. Well, I titled this message Crazy Rich Persians because we're going to be looking at some crazy rich Persians here. 
All right. If you think that the stuff that we saw in Crazy Rich Asians was over top, I'm gonna try not to give you any spoilers. But we saw, we thought that was over top. The stuff we're gonna read here is is way over that. And so here in Esther chapter one, here in Esther chapter one verses one through nine, I'm gonna I'm gonna read the first four chapters here. Our first four of verses. So this is God's word. It says this: Now in the day of Ahasuerus. The Hasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat in, on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Stop there. We see here a king giving a banquet for the ages. And the king is doing it in Susha. Susha is one of the four capitals of Persia during that time. And we can guess that during this time it's probably winter because Susha was unbearably hot in summer. And so it's known to be a winter getaway. For meeting the royal family. So it's most likely around winter time when this feast was happening. And it says here in the third year of his reign. So what we know from that is that this is probably 483 BC. In the third year of his reign, meaning this is around the time when Persia is at its biggest state, its pinnacle state, strongest time. This king, Hasweros, throws a grand party. In verse 4, it says that he showed the riches of his royal glory. And I'll focus on that word glory a bit in verse 4. In Hebrew, that word for glory here is this word kabod. The literal meaning of that is honor and glory. But there's four nuances that comes from this word. The first nuance we see is that this word has a sense of weight to it. This word has a sense of weight to it. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 11, um, the word is used to, to describe power. And it says power as a heavy yoke. And the word heavy yoke, that's where the word kabod is being used. In Isaiah 22, 24, it talks about this weight of honor that hangs on a person. Hangs on the, around a person on the neck. So we see honor as being weighty. It's being heavy. The second connotation we have with this word is the one of possessions. In Genesis 31, verse 1, the word is translated, translated literally to wealth. And it's talking, about, it's talking about the wealth of Jacob during that time. And so there's a sense of possession, and there's honor, and there's glory that comes from those possessions. The third meaning that we see here is one of status or reputation. We tend, we tend to use the word honor, held in honor. Someone of high honor. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8, the word is being used and describe a seat of honor. Someone who has a seat of high status, high rank. And the fourth connotation we see is one of splendor. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 18, 
Isaiah writes about the splendor of the trees in the forest of Lebanon. And so there's a splendor, this beauty that comes from this forest. In Haggai chapter 2 verse 3, it talks about the glory of the temple, the beauty of the temple, the splendor of the temple. And we see all these things, all these four connotations being used here, being mentioned, really mentioned here in this one word, glory, in verse 4. It says, says, the king is doing all this. He's showing off the riches of his glory and of the splendor and the pomp of his greatness. And as we, and let's just keep reading because we'll see more. What exactly does that mean? What exactly is this king showing off? Verse 5, when these days are com- were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susha and the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So after 180 days of feasting, of banqueting, this king didn't have enough. He needs an after party for seven days. So there's a second feast that he throws. And here, in starting in verse 6, we start getting a description that's just of this king's palace and the feast that was happening. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of of porphyry and marble and mother of pearl and precious stones. I mean, this palace is amazing. You all thought that that wedding and crazy rich Asians was over the top. This was crazier. You will be blown out of your minds if you're at this feast. And not only that, not only was the place beautiful, not only did the king show off his possessions, his glory, his beauty of his place, he also showed his status and reputation to them. He gave Every man what he wanted. Verse 7. Drinks were served in golden vessels. Vessels of different kinds. The royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king has given orders to all the staffs of his palace to do as each man desired. This was a bottomless keg. Everyone was free to drink as much as they want. This is the, this is the college kid's dream. <laughs> what else can you ask for from the party? What else can you ask for from the feast? And during this entire time, a dirt feast was being thrown. A, a dirt feast thrown by Queen Vashti. In verse 9, we get introduced to the queen here. And we'll talk more about the queen next week. But we see here, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the woman in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. If you think about what this king is doing here, if you think about all the things that he's been he's giving to his people, we can really relate that. To what we see in America today. We can really relate that to what we see in America today. How, I mean, how many guys, how many guys know just how much you strive to have that kind of honor? Strive to have kind of status, that kind of reputation among people. 
How many of you guys want to be known as someone who succeeds? How many of you guys want to be known as someone who has all those different followers on Instagram? Or have to, to go to the most hipster spot and take the best picture there? And to have all these different filters and Snapchat streaks. How many of you guys want to be known amongst you to be good at your school? To be the best looking, to be the most friendliest, to be the best gamer, to be the best dresser. How many of you guys want to gain all the same reputation and honor and glory that's being displayed here in Esther? And how much of America encourages that? I mean, don't we see America encourage that? I mean, if we think about the battle, even think about the battle of the political realm, right? Constantly, our president is just trying to defend himself and his honor and his reputation. And, and that's all he's trying to do. Think about what all the other people in politics are trying to do. And they're trying to gain seats in Senate and on the Supreme Court. It's all about pushing their honor and reputation out there so that people will vote for them. Think about all the fights and the movements out there. About people wanting to feel worthy. People wanting to be heard. Wanting to be seen. And then think about you and your college campuses. How your college campuses are encouraging you to do the same. America is all about the glamour and honor. And we would be fools to not recognize that. If we're not thinking about our context, if we're not thinking about where we are situated right now, we are ignorant of how much our culture is influencing our minds and our habits. And we see here in Esther that the king here wants all the glory, wants all the honor, And we have to be asking ourselves the question, where is God in the midst of all this? Where is God in the midst of all this debauchery? Which leads us to our themes that we won't see in Esther. Esther is probably the, can't think of another book. But Esther, there's no mention of God at all throughout the entire book. And that's, I mean, that's amazing. This book is in the Bible. God is never mentioned once. And we see that evident in our passage today, even just nine verses, that God is not here. But I think what is most significant is that we see here that The glory that this king is trying to get, this glory that he's trying to portray out to his people, that same word for glory and for honor is the same word that we use when we talk about the glory of God. Why is this king getting that glory? Where is God? Because all glory and honor belongs to God. 
in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, it says that the entire earth is filled with God's glory. That is the same word that we see here. God is the one who deserves that glory, not this king. Where is God in the midst of all this? And why isn't he getting the glory? And in the same way, don't we ask that question in our lives at times? Don't we ask that question when we face trials in our lives? When we go on college campuses and we see the secularism that's happening there? And we see all these people debating against religion, debunking Christianity, debunking your faith, saying God isn't real. Or people who proclaim they believe, but they don't know the Bible and they don't act like Christians. Do they truly believe that God exists? Because their testimony doesn't say that. But maybe for yourself, in your own quiet times, sometimes you too might have doubts. That when you're struggling through something, when you're struggling through hardships in academics, and you're, you're trying to balance your papers and your exams, and yet you still need to eat because you can't live off, off hot pockets forever. And you're... And you're going crazy and you're, you're debating if you come to turf or should you study or should you go to church on Sunday mornings. And things are just going out of whack and you're no longer sleeping well. Do you ask, where is God? Does God exist? Or maybe you're going through a hard relationship. Maybe you're going through a hard breakup. Maybe you're going through a, a fight with a close friend. And you're wondering to yourself, they're in the midst of all this struggle and strife. When you're in the middle of an argument with your parents, do you wonder, where is God? Where is God in the midst of all this? We will be constantly asking that question throughout Esther. Where is God? Is He working? And we will see how God indeed is working. Because God is sovereign. Our God is an invisible God. And He works for you and for your good. Do you believe that? Do you believe in Romans 8.28 when it says, All things are worked together for your good. Do you believe that God does that sovereignly in your life? The other thing that we see here is the opposing kingdoms. What I mean by that is we'll see a constant reversal. A constant reversal where things seem to be playing, be playing out one way and all of a sudden God plays it the opposite way. And it's an amazing testament to how God works behind the scenes. During this time, let me ask this question here. Why is this king throwing this party? What is he gain? What does he gain to get the respect of his people? Specifically, what does he gain to get the respect of these officials, these army ser- sergeants, these nobles, these governors? What does he gain from all that? You see, what we know from history about Persia and this king is that during this time, he, this king wanted to launch an attack to Greece. And if we were to go back, here's Matt, we notice that Greece has not been taken over. And so he wanted to attack Greece. He wanted to take over Greece. 
But the, what happened was that actually several years before, his father failed at taking over Greece. Greece defeated Persia. And Greece stopped Persia from advancing. Persia was still the mighty emperor at the time, but Greece at least stopped him. And so this king, Ahasuerus, wants to take over Greece. And he wants to get all his people on his side, all his army officials on his side. And he's telling them, hey, look, we have all this power. We have all this wealth. We have all this glory. No one can take us down. Are you with me? But here's the ironic, funny thing about Esther. The people reading Esther, the, when Esther was written, was after all this happened. And we know from history that this king failed to take over Greece. That Greece eventually defeated him a second time. And after that second time, all he did was he went back to his throne and he just threw parties night after night. Because that's all he knew how to do. In other words, what we see here is we see a farce. We see this guy putting up a facade. This man, this king does not have any true power. This king does not have any true glory. That's all a front. And the readers of Esther, the Jewish people who are reading Esther, they know this when they're reading this. And they're laughing at this, this introduction here. They're laughing because it's, it's over the top. It's ridiculous. And they know that this king really is not all that. Because he's going to lead his army into a defeat. And they know that. And they're laughing at this king for doing all this. Thinking that it's wise. But at the end of the day, it was actually foolishness. And isn't that how God constantly works in scripture? God constantly turns the wisdom of the world into foolishness. God's kingdom constantly turns the world upside down. In Matthew chapter 5, we see an description about God's kingdom. Verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. For righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Don't you see how opposite this is from the kingdom of Persia? That is people who are poor who will gain the kingdom of heaven. The people who are mourning. The people who are meek and humble, not proud. The people who actually hunger and thirst. Not those in Persia who can drink as much as they want. It's actually the people who hunger and thirst for righteousness that says they will be satisfied. They will find contentment in all that in the kingdom of heaven. That is an opposite kingdom from what we see. And we know this to be true in our own lives as well. Because the way you're saved, this is... It's foolishness to this world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul writes this. He says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble truth, of noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human beings might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written that the one who boasts boasts in the Lord in other words God here gets the glory that he deserves God here gets the honor that he deserves because he used weak vessels to bring about salvation for you God is amazing. God is working. And many times when we feel like God isn't, He is. And He's doing it in a way you cannot imagine. And we know that to be true because that is exactly how we were saved. God used the cross, a symbol of shame during the Roman Empire, to be something that's glorious for all eternity. Imagine that. It is amazing how God works. It is amazing. That we have such a Savior. It's amazing that our invisible God is present in our lives, working mightily for our good and for His glory. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank You for Your grace. Your abounding grace that's so amazing, that constantly just reaches out to us. And keeps us and preserves us. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing grace. And Lord, may we just then, in response, give you all the glory and honor and put our trust and our faith in you, recognizing that your wisdom is perfect. And there is nothing you cannot do. You are sovereign, God. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this salvation and for this hope that you have placed in our lives. We thank you, God, for constantly being on our side and for loving us, loving this world so much that you're willing to sacrifice your son for sinners like us. What a God. What a Savior. May you get all the glory and honor. I pray all this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen.